The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. And uh, I asked you to open up to Isaiah 53. What we've been doing, we've taken a break from our regular study in the book of 1 Corinthians. And just for the four Sundays in December, we're looking at very specific prophecies regarding the Messiah that were made in the Old Testament so that we could look at them in a greater way than we normally are able to as they all speak of this coming Christ, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus. And uh, we are appropriately reminded for the meaning of Christ's birth. And so far we've looked at Genesis 3.15, was the one at the beginning of the month of why Jesus came and why he was to be born, prophecy, 4,000 years before his birth. And then last week we looked at Isaiah 9.6, great, wonderful just packed one sentence of amazing truths about the nature of who this Messiah would be more than a man, but God in a body and all the attributes therein be fulfilled his coming. And then today we look at one of the greatest prophecies, the most complex prophecies in the entire Bible, Isaiah 53. It's an entire chapter. We have the privilege of looking at that. Let's go ahead and read. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 12. In Isaiah 53, about in the middle of your Bible there. I'm reading from the New American Standard. And as we're reading this, uh, keep this in mind. This was written by the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet about 700 years before Christ. It's amazing. 700 years before Jesus was even born. Yeah, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We've got Bibles coming around. So this prophecy was written by Isaiah the prophet who lived around the area of Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus was ever born. It's amazing as you read it because the detail of this prophecy that was fulfilled in Christ 700 years later attests to the fact that uh, the Bible is true. It is God's word. No human could conjure this up ahead of time. And Jesus fulfilled these details to a T in his first coming. Some will be fulfilled in his second coming. So this is a prophecy about Jesus, His really his birth, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and his exaltation even on to, into eternity. So it's a comprehensive prophecy. As we're reading, this is about Jesus. I say that because I was in Israel two years ago and we were at a Jewish, Israeli Christian church worshiping and the pastor, uh, born and raised a Jew, I think Orthodox Jew or whatever, but at some point he became a Christian got saved, so now he's a Christian Jew and preached a wonderful message in Hebrew. I understood very little of it, but fortunately they had a translator, so we could follow along. But I did talk to him. He was a wonderful man of God, the pastor, and I wanted to ask him specifically because he grew up as a Jew and an unbelieving Jew and learning and studying in the synagogue. And I wanted to clarify hearsay or a myth, or not really a myth, but I, I thought it was true, but I asked him one question. I said, Pastor, is it true that some Orthodox Jews, uh, as they study the Old Testament, the law, they don't call it the Old Testament, but uh, and even when they're studying Isaiah, that they might skip over chapter 53 of Isaiah? And he said, yeah, that's true. Unbelieving Jews, some certain schools and segments, uh, will skip Isaiah 53 because it is so obviously a prophecy of Jesus. So that's pretty significant. And many of the other Jews that are unbelieving, they're not Christian, uh, they might study Isaiah 53, but they don't see Jesus here. They, don't, they say this is not about Jesus. This is about the nation of Israel. Or maybe they'll say this is about Isaiah the prophet or those kind of things. So, but we know from the New Testament this is a prophecy about Jesus. So with that in mind and some context, let's go ahead and read what Isaiah had to say about this coming Messiah. Starting at verse 1, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away, and as as for His generation who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord, or Yahweh, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper In his hand, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So says Isaiah 53. Well, if you think about the greatest challenge thrown at Christianity, the critics tell us, the agnostics, the unbelievers, or just the critics of the faith, there are just a few uh, problems or dilemmas or stumbling blocks that people try to throw at Christianity to dis. Uh, prove Christianity or say the Bible is not true. And so one of the greatest challenges supposedly that Christianity can't answer or supposedly doesn't have an answer for is the problem of evil, it's called. The problem of evil and its essence is why do bad things happen if God is good and all-powerful? Because if God was all-powerful, he could do whatever he wanted. If God was good, then he could fix all things that are bad and evil, could he not? So if God is good and if he's loving, if he's he's all-powerful, then he would prevent anything evil from happening whatsoever. And yet we look around in the world and we see there's evil all the time. There's trials, there's destruction, there's natural disasters, there's pain and suffering. And the worst of all evils is death, human death. It's the one thing that all people fear and want to avoid. And so that's the reality of life. And so they would say, therefore, those things happen Therefore, the Christian God cannot be true because apparently he doesn't have the power to stop it or prevent it. Or he's not a loving God after all because he has the power and refuses to do anything about it. And as a result, therefore, they say the Bible is not true. Christianity is not true. Jesus is not this Messiah you claim that he is. And so they hang their hat on that one argument as though it is the silver bullet that undermines all the truthfulness and veracity of biblical Christianity. And proudly so. They say, and yet those who know the Bible and know Jesus actually think that argument's quite naive and superficial. And it doesn't even put a dent in the truth of Christianity because I would say the theme of the whole Bible is dealing with evil. The problem of evil is no surprise to Christianity or Jesus or God. That's the theme of the Bible, how God deals with evil from beginning to end. And the greatest evil or the greatest consequence of evil is death. And when you read the Bible, one thing that stands out clear and different and unique about the Bible compared to any other religious book on planet Earth, whether it's the Quran that belongs to a billion Muslims or any other religious book, the Bhagavad Gita and other Eastern books, one thing that's different about the Bible as you read it is it clearly addresses this issue of death, man's greatest enemy, death. We're not afraid of death. It doesn't, the Bible doesn't shy away from death. The Bible uh, has answers to death and all of its components and aspects. Clearly, the Bible actually has a theology of death that is comprehensive. It explains why there is death. That's probably the most common question we hear when a tragedy happens somewhere around the world, whether it's a, a shooting of 23 kindergartners or some tornado or 
uh, a natural disaster that wipes out 10,000 people at one time and on CNN or the news we will repeatedly hear this question of why did all these people have to die? Why does death happen? And God made it clear in Scripture. Death is the result of sin. It really is that simple. That is not simplistic. That is not being insulting. That is not a platitude. That's not spiritualizing the answer. That is the answer. Death is a result of sin. Genesis 2, uh, God made that clear to Adam before he sinned. If you disobey it, when you sin, you will die. Sin is the appropriate, or death is the appropriate consequence of sin. If you sin, you will die. And then Genesis chapter 5, it lists that genealogy. He lived, he died, he died, he died, he died. It repeats death eight times to make the point God's word is true. If you sin, you will die. And then right in the middle of the Bible, in Ezekiel, God said, "My every soul belongs to me, and the soul that sins, it shall die. And every person shall die as a result of their own sin. And then the New Testament fleshes that out as well, that the consequences, the wages of sin is death. So that is the problem of evil, and the answer is in the Bible. Why do we have death? Because we have a problem called sin. The definition of one definition of heaven is a place of bliss and living where death doesn't exist and never will, according to the Bible. So the Bible is unique on this issue. It gives us the answer. Isaiah 53 actually is a chapter about death and its meaning. It's about our leader. It's about the founder of Christianity. It's about the main person of the Bible. That would be Jesus, who people would say started the Christian religion. He is unique. He is distinct. If I were to ask you, what is the most unique or distinct feature? Listen carefully. The most unique or distinctive feature or component of the life and ministry of Jesus compared to all other religious leaders in the history of the world. You would have to say at the top of the list would be his death. It's absolutely totally unique. The death of Jesus is like nothing else. And just briefly, if you think about other religious leaders in history and you think about their death and the significance of their death, there's a stark contrast. Think about uh, the largest religion in the world, they tell us, is Islam. And the founder of that religion is Muhammad. And if I were to ask you, what do you know about Muhammad's death? There's probably on the spot very little you could tell me. You might not even have any idea of when he lived. What year it was, what were the circumstances when he died, why he died, was there any significance to his death, what did he think about his death? So his death, Muhammad's death is drowned out in total obscurity in terms of any significance or meaning whatsoever. There is no meaning or significance to the death of Muhammad. That's not an insult to the religion of Islam, that's a fact. They don't say there's any significance really to his death. Well, what about the death of Allah, the God of Islam? What about his death? The God of Allah. Well, they would say Allah didn't die. He has never died. He will never die. So there is no significance or meaning to his death because he hasn't died. That's why Jesus' death is unique because Jesus is God. He is yet Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh died. The God who cannot die, died. Wow. That is incomprehensible to the human mind, but it's true. Well, what about the death of Buddha? Again, that's a challenging one. What, and again, it's just we don't know anything about it. As a matter of fact, Buddhist scholars don't even know when Buddha was born. They propose three main dates possibly of when he was born and died. Dates they proposed that maybe he died were 383 B.C. or maybe it was 486 B.C. or more, maybe it was 544 B.C. when he died. Those are like, if you're paying attention, that's 100 years apart. So that's not exactly precision in detail. Compared to what the Bible says about the death of Jesus that we're going to see here is inscripted, it is written in detail regarding his, his death and the meaning of his death and the circumstances of his death that are delineated very clearly and comprehensively in the four Gospels in the New Testament. So that's one thing that I wanted you to think about is the death of Christ and how important it is and its significance and how it sets him apart from every other religious leader, every other God, every other figure, 
and it sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. The death of Christ. His death. Here's a couple things to consider regarding the death of Christ. We know the intricate details of his death, unlike any other religious leader. Even the secular world knows the details of Christ's death. And it's not even their savior. Jesus was born to die. He came to die. Isn't that amazing? That is a profound thought. We talked about this back in December when I asked the question, what is Christmas? Why are we celebrating Christmas? Why do we have Christmas? Well, to shop at Macy's. To get my new flat screen, of course. Well, those are some possible answers, but then we talked about the biblical answers clearly revealed in Scripture. Jesus, uh, Christmas is to celebrate the birth of Christ. And then the follow-up question was, well, why was Christ born? Or why did Christ come from heaven to earth? What was the purpose? And clearly in Scripture, we saw several answers. He came to reveal the Father. He said that in the Gospel of John. I came here to reveal the Father, to show you the Father. Why else was Jesus born? He came to seek and to save sinners, he said about himself. To provide a ransom for many, but to seek and save sinners. Jesus also said to Pilate, I came into this world to reveal and testify to the truth. That's why Jesus came into this world. And then we saw in Genesis 3.15, the reason that Jesus was born and came into this world and why we celebrate Christmas is that the Messiah might conquer Satan and crush the works of the devil. That was what Genesis 3.15 was all about. These are all true and many reasons of why Jesus was born. And then we also mentioned another one. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why was Jesus born? He was born to die. Isn't that ironic? He came and was born for the purpose that he might die. So in other words, his death wasn't an accident. His death was not a surprise. His death wasn't sheer abandonment by everybody who knew him. His death was the very purpose of why he was born and came. His death had a purpose. His death was the greatest work that he accomplished. Think about that. Think about all the miracles that he did that were made. He walked on water. He multiplied bread. He brought a man back from the life. And the, these were all the amazing wonders and works that Christ did. But his greatest work of all was his death. All these other things that he did. His miracles were simply pointers and indicators to the meaning of his death. Explaining who he was and what it meant when he died. His resurrection was also a part of his great work. And his resurrection was a glorification of, the, of his death and the meaning of his death. So everything points to the significance, the priority, and the meaning of his death, his greatest work of all. Jesus was born to die. What an irony. At Christmas, we celebrate the death of Christ. Oh, I thought we celebrate the birth of Christ. Yeah, we do. But his birth can't be separated from his greatest purpose, which was to die. Get this, his death, Jesus' death was planned by him. Jesus' death was planned by him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. It was planned by him in eternity past. See, he wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't taken by surprise. His death was planned in detail in eternity past. His death was planned by him in eternity past and then put in writing in prophecy hundreds and even thousands of years before it ever happened. That is not true of any other human being or religious leader in the history of the world. That is why Jesus is unique. That is why he stands out. Jesus' death and the meaning of his death is referred to over 70 times in the New Testament by all the authors. They highlight and accentuate his death. You can't talk about Jesus apart from talking about his death and the meaning of his death. That's clear from the apostles. Jesus' life means nothing without his death. Because he died, we can live. He said that. Because he died and he lives, came back from the dead, so also we can live and overcome death. His death, get this, his death killed death. His death conquered death. His death died death. That's a poetic way to say it. Here's another one that's ironic. His death is the good news. What well, Death does not sound like good news. I hate going to funerals. I hate going to memorial services to talk about our deceased. It's, it's sad. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. 
How can you say that death is good news? Well, Jesus' death is good news because of who he was and what he accomplished. And his death is good news because he didn't remain in the grave, right? He was not a victim to death. He overcame death. He faced it head on. He submitted to it, and then he overcame it and conquered it. Because of the resurrection, he came back from the dead. That's why it is good news. So Isaiah 53 explains the meaning of his death. Jesus' death has to be explained. Jesus' death has to be interpreted. Otherwise, people won't know what to do with it. A classic example is Mel Gibson's film on Christ that was in Aramaic or whatever it was. And all it did was just illustrate the activities of the Gospels. But that film was not interpreted. So you walk out of there and saw some guy got beat up and rejected and it was pretty sad and ended up getting crucified and apparently unjustly and you walk out and there's no interpretation to it so people are left on their own how do i interpret this what do i do with it what is the meaning of it what is the significance of it and that's why the death of christ has to be preached it has to be proclaimed it has to be explained it has to be interpreted and that is what isaiah 53 does like no other passage in the bible no other prophecy there is no other prophecy in the bible that explains the meaning of christ's death as isaiah 53 does that's why isaiah 53 is so unique It's unique for a lot of different reasons. One, because it is so long. It is so detailed. But one of its greatest unique features is it explains the meaning of his death. And that's what we need. I think of Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch who worked for the queen and he's in his fancy chariot cruising along in the desert, going back home after visiting Jerusalem. And actually he's not driving. He's sitting there in the passenger seat being treated like a prince. And he's reading his Bible. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And then Philip is appointed by God. Philip the evangelist is appointed by God to catch up with the chariot. So Philip, however, he catches up with this chariot that's moving and he notes that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading the scriptures from the Bible and he's actually reading it out loud and Philip hears it and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Get up here, you Bible teacher. And so he pulls Philip into the chariot and then they have a Bible study in the chariot. And it says right there, beginning from this scripture, says Acts chapter 8. What scripture? Isaiah 53. He he preached Jesus to him. Oh, there it is, the divine interpretation. This chapter is about Jesus. Earlier on in Acts chapter 8, it says that Philip was given the commission to proclaim the gospel, to preach, get this, the good news, and that is synonymous with Isaiah 53, to preach Jesus. So the chapter we're about to look at right now and unfold, it is about Jesus, it is good news, it needs to be explained, it needs to be interpreted from a divine point of view. And thankfully, God has given us the interpretation of Isaiah 53 in the New Testament. If we did not have the New Testament, we could not understand Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is referred to many times by the New Testament apostles specifically and many times by way of allusion. That's how important it is. And they knew that. This was 700 years before Christ came. All of, all of Israel should have known this. The, the great stumbling block to the Jews who did not believe, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the crowds, and the multitudes who did not believe in Jesus when he came the first time, there was one huge stumbling block that kept them from believing in Jesus as the Messiah. What was that stumbling block that Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 1? It was this idea that the Messiah would die. We can't have a conqueror. Messiah means the anointed one, the reigning king, the warrior. That's what they were looking for. The one who could politically save them from the Romans, among other things. And here there's this lowly Jesus who ends up getting executed and dying. And so in the mind of the Jews, they're thinking, this, is, this can't be the Messiah. A Messiah can't die. He can't. How can a dead one deliver us and liberate us? That's why Paul says this is a stumbling block. Jesus is a major stumbling block to the Jews because they didn't have a full understanding of the Old Testament. It was right there. Isaiah 53 announced loud and clear with God's own divine megaphone, the Messiah must die. So there's no excuse they should have known that. They were blinded by their own sin. They were blinded by some, Satan himself. So with that, let's go ahead and look at Isaiah 53, this amazing chapter. We can't do it justice, but we can at least look at the highlights and then hopefully open it up in a way that you can go back to this again and again in your own time of devotion, seeing these glories of Christ 
to feed your soul. So let's go ahead and look at it. I just I came up with four points here. Uh, calling this the coming Messiah part three. This is our third prophecy we're looking at. And so let's go over those four points, uh, broke it up section by section. Uh, this Isaiah 53, just so you know, it is poetry in Hebrew. Uh, scholars would all agree that Isaiah 53 is one of the most difficult chapters or sections in the Hebrew in terms of the syntax and the grammar and the exegesis. And so I was in my Hebrew this week, all week long, and it was, it was brutal. And it, it was a challenge, but not impossible. The truths come through very clearly with the aid of the Holy Spirit. So there is clarity here, but it is a challenge. But it's in poetry in the original language. And the reason I bring that up is it's poetic or it's poetry, but yet it's literal. Some people think that if it's poetry, it can't be literal. People say that about Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 through 3 is not poetry, by the way. It's narrative. But this is poetry, and it is yet literal. A literal person is speaking of literal acts and events that happened to him. So let's go ahead and look at it. And let's look at point number one. And it's be, actually the story begins, uh, actually Isaiah 53 picks up and is actually connected from, with Isaiah 52. They shouldn't be separated technically. So at the end of 52 it talks about how this coming Messiah, this servant of Yahweh would be exalted for his people. He'd be a great liberator. He'd show great power and great wonders. And so that's how Isaiah 52 concludes. And so then Isaiah 53 verse 1 picks it up and it starts with, the humiliation of this coming Messiah, but it ends in his exaltation. begins with humiliation, ends in majesty and exaltation, which is appropriate because that is the life and ministry of Christ as we know it in the Gospels. He came in humiliation, had his life of ministry, and we know how it will end for Christ. It, will, it ends in exaltation and glory. He's exalted even now by virtue of his resurrection and ascension, and it will culminate even more as he reigns in glory and majesty for all eternity over all of the universe, And so that's where Isaiah 53 ends. So it goes from beginning to end in this wonderful ministry of our blessed Savior, Jesus. So let's look at point number one about Jesus and the many facets of his wonderful ministry. And point number one is verses one through three. And that was Jesus was born to suffer. He was born to suffer as the son of man. Just so you know, Jesus' favorite term for himself that he used, he called himself the son of man more than any other title he used. He, would, he said son of God, but very rarely. Most frequently, he was son of man. What was he doing? Well, that's, that's right out of the Old Testament. That's right out of Daniel 7, very technical, specific phrase. And Jesus was identifying with humanity. He was identifying with sinners. He was identifying with humiliation and weakness and lowliness when he said that that's who he was. In his first coming, he was the son of man. He was the humble one. He was to live in obscurity and humiliation and suffering and rejection. That's who he was. He came to identify with lowly, sinful people. That was his mission the first time. He came in humiliation the first time. The second time when he comes again, he will come in glory. But son of man speaks of his identity with frail, weak, finite, sinful human beings that he came to save. And that was his favorite term for himself. The Son of Man. He came to suffer. Let's look at some of the details here as it talks about... Verses 1-3 to three talk about the birth of Jesus, his origin, his physical appearance, and his physical ministry, how he conducted himself and how he was received by people for three and a half years of his public ministry. That's what it's talking about. And this would be his humiliation. It starts out in verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So the prophet says, okay, there's this coming Messiah. He's going to be the Savior. He's going to rescue his people. Israel He's also going to rescue sinners, the Gentiles. It's going to be amazing. This Messiah is going to be awesome. And then Isaiah stops and pauses and said, oops, except not everybody's going to believe this message. As a matter of fact, a lot are going to reject this message because many people, the majority, are going to reject this servant who's going to accomplish this. And that's why he's saying this is a rhetorical question. Who has believed our message? Boy, very few people are going to actually believe in the message about Jesus. So don't get frustrated today when you're sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors and coworkers and relatives and the majority of them reject it. That is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 verse 1. And you're going to be pulling your hair out saying, wow, who has believed my message? And you're right in sync with uh, Jesus himself because he said in John chapter 12, after doing miracles 
in Jerusalem for three years. And as a result, they didn't want to exalt him and glorify him. For the most part, they wanted to reject him and execute and kill him. And in response to the wholesale rejection, Jesus quoted Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? John did when he was writing it about the ministry of Jesus. Why did so many people reject Jesus and his miracles and his message? Well, it was to fulfill what Isaiah said, that the Messiah, when he came, many would reject his message. Not only would they reject his message and his person and who he is, get this, they would also reject the arm of the Lord that he exercised. That's the second part of verse 1. What is the arm of Yahweh? The arm of Yahweh is a poetic phrase that refers to the power of God, the miracle of God, the arm of God that split the Red Sea, the arm of God that did all these miracles through Moses and Elijah. So the arm of God speaks of miracles. And so Jesus the Messiah, although humble and lowly, would exercise the arm of God, of Yahweh. He would do unbelievable, unique and distinct miracles. He healed a man that was born blind. That had never been done in the history of the world. He walked on water. No one had ever done that. That was the arm of the Lord. That was the power of Yahweh through Jesus. And even though he exercised that for three and a half years all over Palestine, in the end, everybody's verdict was not. You are not the Messiah. So it was rejected. And so the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 10. When he's preaching and he's out, he's getting beat up. He's getting chased out of town after town after town after town and stoned practically to death. And Paul's like, wow, I got this good news. What a glorious, wonderful message. And it can change souls for eternity and forgive your sins and putting you in a right relationship with God, the creator of the universe. What a blessed reality. And Paul was frustrated and he quoted this verse and says, but who's believed our message? So many rejected. Who's believed our message? So this verse is fulfilled about Jesus in the New Testament with his life. That he had a wonderful message. He exercised the miracles of Yahweh himself. Nevertheless, many would reject, and that's still true today. Most people will reject Christ and his message. Jesus said that in John chapter 9. He said, the world hates me. That's startling. The world hates me. Then he told his disciples, I commission you, and the world will hate you. That hasn't changed. Things are not getting better. The world is not getting better. I don't care how many cans you recycle. The world is not getting better. Who's believed our message? Then he goes on, okay, so this coming Messiah is going to be rejected. And Well, why is he going to be rejected if he's doing such great things? And if he's the answer to the problems of the world, and if he's the answer in 52 of Isaiah, where he's going to save and rescue Israel and conquer all these unbelieving pagan nations ultimately and restore all things and make them right, why is he rejected? Why was he rejected? Why were many not believing his message? And a lot of it has to do with his appearance and how he conducted himself. And so that's verse 2. It says, for he grew up, before him, Jesus grew up before Yahweh, before God, before the Father, born through Mary like a tender shoot, like a sucker branch, like that little part of a plant that kind of sticks out and it's an abnormal growth and you don't even want it and you get your pruners and you cut it off. That's how Jesus entered this world. Unknown, ignored, in obscurity, rejected. No room in the inn, in a cold cave, in an animal trough. That's how he was born. That's how he was welcomed into this world. Can't get any more humble or lowly than that. That's what it's talking about. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, uh, very uh, unimpressive. He grew up. His entire life was that way. 30 years of life's Christ. Not Nothing is said about it in the gospel. We don't know anything about Jesus from birth to age 30 when he began his ministry, except for one incident that happened when he was 12. And not much is given. And everything else is just silence. So you talk about obscurity, and this is what it's talking about. goes on, uh, and he was like a root out of parched ground. What's a root? A root comes from a plant. A root has life until it's dead, but it provides life. It is a source of life for the plant. And here's Jesus. He was like a road, the source of life, born in Bethlehem, born in Israel, coming to his people, yet it was not welcomed by his people. His people had hardened hearts 
towards him. They rejected him. It was darkness. The Pharisees and Sadducees reigned supreme with legalism and self-righteousness and obscuring the true truth of the Old Testament, the Bible, so that the people couldn't understand a lot of it. So Jesus was born into a very dark, spiritually dry world. That's what this is talking about. Jesus was like a root, the one, the source of life. And yet he was born in a context and in a world that was like parched ground. The root of Jesse. So that's his birth. That's his origin. Then it goes on. Now it starts literally talking about his appearance. Literally his physical appearance. How tall he was. I remember when I was in like junior. No, I was in elementary school. I didn't grow up in a like a Bible believing Bible teaching home. So I was very illiterate in the Bible growing up. But I heard religious stories and I heard myths and stories about Jesus. And I remember at our house we had a conversation about Jesus one day and and one of my siblings asked another member of my family so uh, you know Jesus was a carpenter and uh, had to walk around a lot so he was probably like kind of strong and muscly and kind of maybe stood out and was an extraordinary exemplary model of a human being don't you think and then the other member of our family said yeah that's probably true and so if you look at pictures of Jesus we don't know what Jesus looked like but all these renditions and drawings for 2,000 years there's all kinds of different ones and some are they make him kind of rough-hewn and tall and burly and standing out and distinctly different and noticeable and some actually a lot of them have a little glowing thing a little flying saucer over his head what is the flying saucer over his head i always wondered as a kid that's called a halo or his face is shining his face only shown one one time at the transfiguration but so he didn't have a halo growing over his head but that's what this talks about it says uh he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So there are three words here that are very specific, saying, uh, talking about his form, his build. The word for form there. It actually, beautiful form is the literal Hebrew word. He didn't have a beautiful form. He was not literally well built. That's what, that is the exact word used of Abigail in Samuel when it describes that godly woman. It says she was a wonderful godly lady. It also said she was well built. In terms, of, in terms of her physical beauty. She stood out. She was unique. This is the word. Another, the modern vernacular, but she had a nice body because the emphasis is on the external of the frame of the human body. This is the same word used. His body. Look at, flip. This is just kind of interesting. This, these same two Hebrew words are used in Genesis 39, 6, 1 Samuel 16 that are used here of Jesus where it says he wasn't well built. Then the other word, uh, it says, nor his appearance that we should be attracting. His appearance was not pleasing. It didn't stand out. There's nothing striking about it. Some Hebrew translations say he wasn't, it wasn't handsome is the word. So look at Genesis. If you've got your Bible there, Genesis uh, 39. And we'll look at verse 6. It's talking about Joseph. What did Joseph look like? Joseph was one of the 12 brothers. He was an exemplary godly man and in genesis 39 it actually describes his physical features along with his character and it says so he left everything this would be potiphar who entrusted everything to joseph so he left everything he owned to joseph's charge so he trusted joseph joseph had high integrity hard worker ethical not only that in terms of his character but also his physical condition and with him there he did not concern himself with anything uh, except the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Those are the exact same words, exact same phrases used of Jesus in Isaiah 53. And it, in Isaiah 53, it says the exact opposite of Jesus. So it's interesting to put those side by side. Joseph was attractive in form. In other words, he, literally, he was well built. And he was handsome. He was pleasing to the eye. And the exact opposite with the low, low in Hebrew means not, not. Jesus was not handsome. He was not well-built. He has no stately form or majesty. He didn't have a halo over his head uh, that we should look upon him nor appearance. The point of this is not that he was ugly. The point is that Jesus was just normal. If you saw him in a crowd, you wouldn't say, oh, he's uglier than everybody else or he's more beautiful than everybody else. You You wouldn't recognize him. He was unrecognizable as a leader and a majestic king. So that was his physical appearance. Uh, A lot of times people with charisma and even outward uh, unique features and abilities, they attract people to themselves as a leader for the wrong reason. Case in point would be the first king of Israel, Saul. 
We want a king. We want a king. And we want that one because he's... Why? God says, why do you want Saul as your king? Because he's tall, dark, and handsome. I kid you not, that was their answer. He was tall, dark, and handsome? Seriously? That kind of sounds like American politics. But anyway. (laughs) Meaning, everybody. Senators, mayors, just politics. But it's surface. Surface. That wasn't Jesus. He didn't fit the mold of a king according to the standards of man so let's look at verse three so not only his outward appearance but how he conducted himself who did jesus hang around with he well he hang he hung around with people you wouldn't expect if you're going to be a king or of royalty because royalty uh is a privileged person they only hang out with the important people right invite the special guests and the rich people that wasn't jesus he was a king a king of the world savior messiah and yet he commiserated and hung out and interacted with the lowly in life. And that's why he was accused by the Pharisees. Wow, he just hangs out with prostitutes and sinners and lowly people. And wow, if he really was the Messiah, he'd know who was washing his feet. This prostitute who was washing his feet. What's up with that? But that's who Jesus hung out with. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And people understood that. And they saw this for three years. And as a result, they rejected him and his ministry. This cannot be the Messiah. Because he wouldn't be hanging out with these people. Because Jesus is hanging out with sinners all the time and people who are hurting and lost. He's weeping. He's weeping over his people. He's weeping over his sins and their needs. And they are sheep without a shepherd. And he's pouring out his soul. And that's why it says right here, he was despised and forsaken of men for the most part. Why? Because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who wants a, a king that's weeping and whining and crying all the time? How can I put my hope in that kind of a leader? So they rejected him. Like one from whom they hide. They're embarrassed by Jesus. Get that. When Jesus came, like one from whom men hide their face. They don't even want to be associated with him. They are embarrassed by him. He was despised. As a result, we did not esteem him. The prophet Isaiah is putting himself in there as a prophecy. The nation of Israel is not going to like him. They're going to reject him. They're going to forsake him. They will despise him. They want nothing to do with him. And so as a result, but that was Jesus's purpose. He came that way. It wasn't a mistake. He came to suffer and identify with his people as the son of man go on to the second point there and that's four through six what else about this messiah who would come in humiliation to do a humbling work washing the dirty feet of sinners which kings aren't supposed to do well verses four to six really this is his purpose this is why the meaning of death is so significant and this is really the highlight of the entire chapter four through six in terms of the meaning of christ's death Jesus was born to be a substitute. There it is. Jesus was born to be a substitute as the Lamb of God. Jesus was born to be a substitute for sinners. A substitute for sinners. He would take the place of sinners. How would he take the place of sinners? He would take the place of sinners by submitting himself to the wrath of God the Father. And he would absorb God the Father's wrath that was deserved for sinners. And Jesus wasn't a sinner. And so he willingly took the place of sinners who deserved the outpouring of God's wrath. And he did that when he was willingly died on the cross. So he died as a substitute for sinners. That's the first part of the substitution. There's two sides of the substitution of Christ and his work. First was him being made sin. God made him sin, the one who knew no sin. And God, the Father, poured out his wrath on Jesus and poured and poured it on Jesus and punished him as though he was the worst sinner in the history of the world. And in turn, Jesus, who was sinless and all glorious and a holy God, transferred his pristine righteousness on any sinner who would believe that he was the substitute. So it's a double substitution. Jesus takes our sin and we who believe we take his holiness and we are swallowed up and drowned and cleansed in the pure, sinless holiness of Jesus. If we believe that he is the savior. And Jesus was seen as the wretched sinner by God, the father and God, the father executed him on the cross and punished him as justice required. Jesus died the death of any sinner who believes that he was their substitute. That's what 4 through 6 is about. So let's look at it. This how Jesus died as our substitute. Surely our griefs he himself bore. In the Hebrew, it's literally, surely our sicknesses he bore. He took upon our sicknesses into his own body as the God-man. And our sorrows, literally his, our pains, He took on our sicknesses and our pains he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
What do you mean he took our sicknesses and our pains? That sounds kind of physical. You mean my physical sicknesses and diseases and ailments were taken upon Christ during his life and with his death and resurrection? Yes. My physical condition, my weaknesses, my uh, diseases, my illnesses somehow mysteriously, amazingly, supernaturally and spiritually were taken upon Christ as an atoning sacrifice upon himself. That's what Matthew 8:17 says. Jesus went around, did miracles, and it said he healed many who were sick to fulfill what the prophet had written. And Isaiah quotes this verse that Jesus took upon our sicknesses upon himself. And the only reason that that is true is because all sickness and disease is the result of what? Of sin. First and foremost, Jesus took our sin. So he dealt with the root of the problem. The root of the problem was sin. And as the sacrifice, he dealt with sin. He died for sin. He conquered sin. And as a result, all the consequences that come from sin will be eradicated. And so for us, these diseases and sicknesses are not ultimately fulfilled in our lifetime. They weren't even ultimately fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus when he did those miracles because every person that he healed died later. He didn't get provide a permanent healing for them. But it was a sign that he was the Messiah and that ultimately forever these sicknesses and diseases will be conquered in the life, death, resurrection and glory of Christ. So that's why when we get to heaven, we will be literally liberated and saved from all physical ailments, diseases and sicknesses. Isn't that wonderful? And lower back pains, the most common of all. Isn't that amazing in our supernatural resurrection bodies? That's what Christ will do. So there is a physical and emotional and psychological component that is part of the work of Christ. And then it goes on, but it's beyond that. It's because of the spiritual and him dying for sin, the root of all these problems. Verse 5, but we, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was pierced with the nails in his hands and in his feet, as Isaiah or uh, Psalm twenty-two, sixteen says. This is a prediction of his execution and how they would do it. They would pierce him. They pierced him in the side, the hands and the feet. And that is exactly what the Hebrew word means. He was punctured through. He was pierced. He was killed and executed because of our sins as our substitute. He was crushed, literally broken to pieces. And the implication there is death. He was executed to the point of death for our sins, our iniquities. He, our, he, our, he, our. Those are the terms of substitution. Jesus had a vicarious Atonement, a vicarious death. He died in our place. Our sins, our transgressions, He died for me. And then He says, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. We should have been whipped. We should have been scourged. We should have been punished. But God did it, the Father, on Jesus instead. And He absorbed our wrath. He died as our substitute if you believe in Him. And some people might be saying, well, I'm not a transgressor. I'm not filled with iniquity. I'm not evil. I am not wicked. I don't deserve chastening the wrath of God. Well, yeah, you do and I do. That's what the Bible says. Every person is born a sinner and deserving the, the holy wrath of God. That's the truth of the Bible. And when you realize that and recognize it and own up to it and repent of it, then you're in a position to be saved by God and embrace Jesus as your substitute so that he might absorb your wrath. You need somebody to take your place. Verse 6, regarding these iniquities, it says all of us, every single one of us, Isaiah included, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have wandered. We have That's a metaphorical picture of sin. Each of us has turned to, our, to his own way. We do our own thing. We are self-willed. We turn from God. We were lost. We need to be saved. We need to be rescued and born again. And that's what Jesus came to do to save sinners. But the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on Christ. Christ's death is sufficient for all of your sin. Imagine that. The more you live life, the more you sin. Isn't that amazing? And your sin pile keeps getting higher and higher and higher and higher. It's mind-boggling. And how can God, how can Jesus continue to keep forgiving my sins? They are so egregious and I keep repeating the same ones over and over again. He's going to get tired of me. He's going to throw the towel on me. He's going to give up. No, he's not. Jesus provided an infinite sacrifice for those who believe. So it actually doesn't matter how high. He doesn't want your sin pile to keep growing. But it will. Because we all have sin living in us. But Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. It is an infinite sacrifice. He is the God-man. You can't out-sin God's grace if you know Him. Isn't that a great truth? That's why Romans says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more for the Christian. I'm a horrible sinner. Well, do you know a wonderful Savior? It's really the issue. And that's the promise right here. It caused all, caused the iniquity of all of us. And not just me individually and all of my sin individually, 
but all the sin of all of history of all the people who would come to him. He's totally sufficient. That takes a supernatural, infinite savior to save that many people. An animal can't die for a person. And a fellow human being can't die for another fellow human being. It had to be the God man who is infinite and perfect. And that is Jesus, the perfect substitute. He is the sacrificial lamb. It's his very purpose. I think of this idea, the lamb. In, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they went and hid in the bushes and they tried to hide from God and they covered themselves with fig leaves as though uh, God couldn't see them. And then God apparently stripped off their fig leaves and said, that's ridiculous. That's a man-made concoction. You can't forgive yourself. Here, I'll cover you in your sin and your shame. And it says that they were covered with animal garments or animal skins. The only way that you could do that is you had to kill an animal. So that was the first sacrifice of an animal that died as a substitute. Blood was shed for the sin of Adam and Eve. Could have been a lamb. That was the first execution of a lamb on behalf of sinners. A lamb of God that would provide sin. That was a picture of the coming Messiah. Jesus, the lamb of God that John the Baptist said in John chapter 1, verse 29, the public first display of Jesus. And John the Baptist cried at the top of his lungs, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the lamb of God. Died as a substitute for sinners. Let's go on to 7 to 10. Well, why did Jesus have to die as a substitute? Because God is holy. God, get this, hates sin. Psalm 5, verses 4 and following says, God hates sin. God must punish sin, and He is a holy, sinless God, and He must punish sin only one way. There's only one thing that appeases and satisfies God's wrath towards His hatred of sin, and that is death, bloodshed. Somebody has to die. God's wrath has to be appeased. God's holiness has to be satisfied. Someone has to die. You can't get to heaven unless you die. Did you know that? How do I get to heaven? You must die. But your death isn't sufficient. So somebody has to die in your place. Somebody greater than you has to die in your place, and that was Jesus. Because he's the only one that could satisfy God's requirement. The wages of sin is death. Number three, Jesus was born to satisfy the wrath of the Father. The wrath. Some people, even evangelicals and Christians today, say that God doesn't have wrath. That's just a distorted Old Testament view of God. That now we have the New Testament that's really rectified and clarified everything and has shown us truly that God is first and foremost and only love, love, love. And God actually is not a God of wrath after all. That is not true. Because there's plenty of wrath about God in the New Testament. And there's plenty of love about God's character in the Old Testament. So wrath is just one of God's many attributes that are intertwined and complement each other. He's a loving God and He's a God of wrath that must punish Sin. So God's wrath had to be appeased. And that's what this section is about, 7 through 10. Uh, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. The fact that he didn't open his mouth when he was being falsely accused, falsely arrested, falsely tried, falsely beaten, falsely condemned, falsely executed... He didn't resist. He did not resist the entire... As a matter of fact, he welcomed it. You know what this means? Jesus was a voluntary a voluntary sacrifice. He volunteered for this death, which separates his death apart from everybody in the history of the world. And even those animals that died in this place, those, those lambs that were killed for thousands of years, they weren't volunteered. I bet you they wanted to live their life. Jesus was a volunteer sacrifice on behalf of sinners he welcomed it he did not resist he didn't open his mouth it's kind of interesting if you read the gospels during these six different trials he's in when herod is in his face pointing his finger in jesus's face demanding answers the gospels say that jesus answered him not a word then when he was arrested and before caiaphas caiaphas is pummeling and interrogating with questions and it says jesus answered not a word And the first time he went before Pilate, Pilate is grilling him on questions and it says, Jesus answered him not a word. And then before Annas, the high priest, the same thing, beating him, trying to force out a confession, it said, Jesus answered him not a word. In each of those instances, this is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He was a willing, volunteer sacrifice on behalf of his people he wasn't going to resist he wasn't going to run he had to die this was the plan this was his plan this was the only way to accomplish salvation he was perfectly in the will of god despite the injustice and despite being oppressed by all these authorities who abused their authority and condemned him falsely 
treated him unjustly. And so he willingly goes to slaughter on behalf of sinners. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was arrested, taken away for the wrong reason and for his generation who considered that he was cut off the land of the living. Cut off, in the middle of verse 8, cut off, that refers to God cut him off. God ended his life prematurely from a human point of view. God did that. That phrase cut off is used by God's judgment throughout the Old Testament starting in Genesis chapter 9 when God cut off humanity through the flood. And then again in Exodus chapter 12 when God cut off any sinner who was undeserving. And it's the same Hebrew phrase. God, God the Father cut off Jesus by killing him at the cross. Appeasing his wrath on behalf of sin. So he's cut off the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. His, what does that mean? Uh, the Gospels tell us that he was crucified with other robbers and he was in the middle. There was a sinner on the right and the sinner on the left and he was executed with fellow sinful people. That is a fulfillment of this verse very specifically. His grave was assigned with, uh, with wicked men. These robbers that deserve to die, Jesus didn't deserve to die. Yet, the contrast is, he died with wicked people, but he himself was not wicked. And so as a, as a result, God honored Jesus at the time of his death by giving him this wonderful place to be rested, and that was in his tomb. And he was with a rich man in his death. That was Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man who gave his unused tomb to Jesus in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 2T. Where he was born and by whom, I mean, where he was buried and by whom he would be buried. Why was he honored this way by God the Father? Well, because he had done no violence. Jesus wasn't guilty. He never did any violence. He never did anything wrong. He never told a lie. He was sinless, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was the truth incarnate. He wouldn't lie. He couldn't lie. But despite the fact that he was totally innocent, verse 10 is the contrast, but Yahweh, get this, was pleased to crush him. God the Father was pleased to kill his son Jesus. Pleased? Wow, I struggle with that. Jesus and the Father who had a unique, intimate, perfect, personal relationship for all eternity past. It grieved the Father to see Him leave heaven's side. It grieved the Father to see Him be humbled and take the state that He did. It grieved the Father to see His Son subjected to all the injustice that He was. It grieved the Father that His Son would have to suffer death on behalf of sinners who deserved it. And at the same time, when Jesus did die and when the Father did crush Him, Isaiah tells us that Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Why was he pleased? Because what he was accomplishing on behalf of sinners. So that we might be saved and join the Father back in heaven, back with Jesus for all eternity in glory. And so you know what? God the Father's family grew from three people to countless people. Isn't that amazing? God the Father, get this, God the triune God of the universe is totally self-sufficient. He does not need people. He doesn't need any of us. He needs nothing. That's called the aseity of God. He needs nothing, totally content within himself. Yet he chose to save sinners and bring them and invite them up into his heaven to live with them for all eternity. Isn't that amazing? Why would he do that? If you are a parent, you can kind of relate to this. That would be kind of like you raise all your 17 of your kids and then they grow up, they graduate, they leave, and then you invite them back to your house later on. Why would anybody do that? Well, God did. Because of his infinite love that he wanted to share. Amazing. Then it goes on to say, uh, crush him, putting him to grief, and if he would render himself as a guilt offering, an atonement for sin. That's exactly what he did. Let's go on to the last part of this. So this is called. This is all kind of sad and humbling, and the bad news. And now the good news, verse ten through twelve. Born in obscurity, rejected by men, hanging out with sinners, not accepted by the who's who, died as a substitute, oppressed by the leaders of the world, executed at the point of death, put in a tomb, and then a glorious resurrection. He conquered the grave. He conquered the grave. 10b says he will see his offspring. He will. He just died. He just got executed. And then the next phrase, he will see his offspring. He will see. Who's, who can see? Only people who are alive. This is the resurrection of Christ. He's coming back 
to life. He predicted this. This is the fulfillment of the good news. This is the capstone of all of God's promises. He'll, the Messiah will be raised from the dead. Not only will he be raised from the dead, he'll raise himself from the dead. Jesus voluntarily died. Jesus voluntarily gave his life. Jesus voluntarily raised himself from the dead. I think of John 10:17. I think it is, where Jesus tells them, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down, and I will willingly raise it up again. Isn't that amazing? Well, here's where he raised it up again. He raised himself from the dead. He will see his offering. What is that? In the, even though Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he will rise again from the dead, and he will be reunited, and he will see his offering. Who are those? those are his children. Who are his children? Anybody that would believe in his substitutionary death on their behalf when they hear the gospel. If you're a Christian today, that is you. You are in Isaiah 53. Isn't that amazing? You are in biblical prophecy very specifically in detail. There you are. If you're a Christian, you are the offspring of Jesus Christ through being born again, having heard the gospel. And you will see Jesus. You know him now. He lives in you. But in the future, literally, you will see Jesus. He will see his offspring. He will see his children. He will be reunited with them after he comes back from the grave. God the Father will prolong his days. God the Father will... Allow him to live eternally as king with his people. And get this, and the good pleasure of the Lord or Yahweh will prosper in his hand. He will be a prosperous resurrected Messiah. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. So these are the byproducts and the results and the benefits and the perks of the work that Jesus did through death and suffering and death and conquering death by rising again from the dead. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it. He'll be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, or literally should be by knowledge of him, by knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. As a result of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he will continue his work of saving sinners by justifying them, making them legally perfect before God by their faith in him. He will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. This is God the Father talking, and God the Father says, I'm going to reward my son for his work and his resurrection. I'm going to apportion him with the great, and I will divide the booty. I will divide the spoils. I will give it to him. It's calling Jesus the great general. Jesus just went through a war. Spiritual war is the greatest war and the realest war of all. And Jesus went through war. He is in war. He is in war constantly. We are always in spiritual warfare. And Jesus accomplished the greatest thing in spiritual warfare, and that was conquering Satan and death and sin on behalf of sinners. And as a result, he now just takes in the rewards and the blessings from God the Father. And Jesus takes those and spreads them out to us and anybody who would believe in him. And if you're a Christian, if you have believed, if you have been saved, you are basking in these rewards constantly, aren't you? Think about all the blessings you have in your life as a Christian. Forgiveness of sin. The gift of prayer. Fellowship with the saints. The wonderful treasure of the Word of God that feeds your soul. And on and on and on. That's not even counting the glories in heaven for all eternity. Christmas has already come. What are you waiting for? These great gifts from our gracious God because of the great work of Jesus Christ. Because He poured out Himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. He died for us. And he interceded for the transgressors. And actually, Romans 8.34 tells us at the last phrase in verse 12 about Jesus. Are you blessed when people pray for you? I, I am, sincerely. And it makes a difference. And I, I want as many people praying for me as possible. And praying as specifically as possible because I need the prayers of the saints. But it's even a more glorious reality that somebody greater than a fellow human is praying for you. And if you're a Christian, according to the Bible, the Holy Spirit prays for you. He intercedes for you as a Christian. And he, he, he never falls asleep. He's praying all the time for you, the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? And another great truth is Romans 8.34 where it says that Jesus, the Christ, prays for you. He intercedes for you if you're a Christian. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. Think about all the problems and trials and struggles you have in life. Thinking, God, I need Somebody to pray for me. The Lord Jesus is your mediator here. He is your high priest. He is praying for you ceaselessly. And you know what's exciting and amazing? And I'll close on this. And it's a good thing to go to lunch on this thought. Jesus is continually and forevermore praying for you. 
and he knows everything about you and what you need prayer for. And Jesus' prayers get answered 100% of the time with a yes. Sets them apart from us, doesn't it? That is awesome. He deserves all the glory. And Merry Christmas. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the Word. And thank you for the opportunity to to take a, a look at Isaiah 53. Uh, which is just so packed and loaded with glorious truths, things we need to be reminded of. And Father, I pray that we would meditate on these truths about Jesus and His death today and all week long, that this would carry us through, that we'd keep going back to the treasure house of Isaiah 53 and keep soaking in its, its glories on our behalf. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your love for us, for Your willingness to come down here to, to be humbled, to undergo suffering, to go to the cross, to absorb the Father's wrath on our behalf. And thank You for saving us, for those of us who know You. And thank You for forgiveness of sin. And thank You that we are adopted into Your family. Thank You for ongoing prayers and interceding for us, Father. And Lord Jesus, we pray You continue to do that. pray that we would be comforted in that reality, knowing that Jesus is praying for us. And God, we, as always, continue to pray for those around us that we love who don't know You personally, that You would... Allow us to share these truths with them. That you would reach their soul. Remove any doubt, unbelief, or blindness. That they might be saved and adopted into your family. We commit them to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.